Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. This is part two of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to episode 111, please do so before listening to this episode which is part two. This episode will include crimes committed against children so listener discretion is advised and before we get into this episode let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The landscape of Yosemite Park was formed by a series of unique geological events. During the time of the dinosaurs, the region was covered with active volcanoes that deposited some molten rock on the surface, but mainly built up large formations of hardened stone under the ground. Well after the mass extinction of the dinosaurs, roughly 5 to 40 million years ago, plate movement in the fault line of western California drove these rock formations out of the ground and formed the impressive and breathtaking Sierra Nevada Range. The relatively young mountains were heavily affected by the last ice age, and the area was covered with glaciers. The movement of the glaciers and the melting of the large ice packs at the end of the Ice Age carved out the majestic cliffs and valleys of Yosemite National Park. Waterfalls still carry the winter snowmelt and seasonal rainfall into the Yosemite Valley, and the landscape is littered with towering redwood trees, some that started growing at or before the birth of Christ. The natural beauty of the park attracts millions of visitors per year, and the park is staffed by over a thousand people during the course of the year. In 1999, three visitors and one staff member would meet a tragic end as the tranquil lands in and outside the park became a hunting ground for one man. This is A Tale of Two Brothers, Part 2. In Part 1, we discussed the terrifying, amazing, and ultimately saddening case of Stephen Stainer. He was abducted off the streets of Merced, California in 1972 and held captive for seven years by a career criminal and pedophile named Kenneth Parnell. After Stephen outgrew Kenneth's sick attraction, his captor completed another abduction, this time of a boy named Timmy White. Stephen watched as Kenneth groomed the young boy and realized Timmy was about to go through the same lengthy cycle of sexual and psychological abuse, and he bravely tried to get Timmy back to his family. The escape gained both boys their freedom from the monster who held them, and they were reunited with their respective families. While Timmy's two-week absence was easier to overcome, Stephen struggled adapting to his old life, facing unease at home and bullying at school. In 1989, nine years after his escape, Stephen seemed to be getting his life back together and moving past his horrible seven years in captivity. Tragedy struck again when Stephen was riding his motorcycle home from work and a car pulled out in front of him and Stephen was struck and killed. Ten years later, in the sleepy area outside Yosemite National Park, most people had moved on from the Stephen Stainer story. It was 1999 and the world was readying for the new millennium and people were marveling at technology like the internet and cell phones. 
Yosemite and the Sierra Nevadas were just as popular then as they are today, and on February 12, 1999, a woman and two girls started what they hoped would be a trip to the park and surrounding area filled with memories, but instead it was going to end with their brutal murders. 42-year-old Carol Sun and her 15-year-old daughter Julie welcomed 16-year-old Silvina Peloso along on their trip to the park. Silvina was a foreign exchange student from Argentina and had been living with her American family for a couple of months. Julie and Silvina had hit it off and become great friends and were looking forward to exploring the natural beauty of the area together. Julie's dad and Carol's husband, Jens, wanted to join the threesome but had an important business meeting and wished the trio a good time as they departed for their first part of the vacation. Julie was a competitive cheerleader and the first part of the trip was a cheerleading competition at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Carol rented a 1999 Red Pontiac Grand Prix to drive for the trip, and after the competition, they drove to a hotel called the Cedar Lodge just outside Yosemite's western edge. On February 15th, they partook in a hike inside the park and then returned to their hotel room. They rented some videos from the front desk to watch and rest up after their day on the trails. The front desk clerk would be the last person to see the three ladies alive. The threesome were not immediately known to be missing. They were on vacation and hadn't been expected to check in with Jens. Hotel staff found the room in normal condition the next morning, and the keys had been left in the room as per hotel policy for an early checkout. Staff assumed the women wanted to get an early start to their day and prepared the room for the next guests. That evening, the women were supposed to meet Jens at the San Francisco airport before the women flew to the Grand Canyon. The family wanted Sylvina to see some of the amazing beauty of the western United States and anyone's first view of the Grand Canyon in person is breathtaking. And not to get too far away from the story here, but I was able to see the Grand Canyon for the first time in my life in 2017. So I was, do the math here, I think 36 at the time. And I'd seen it in movies, I'd obviously seen pictures of it online. And if you haven't been, and you can get to see it at some point in your life, as I said, seeing it in person is absolutely breathtaking. You cannot understand the scope of it and the beauty of it unless you see it in person. So, sorry, that was my own little personal sales pitch for the the Grand Canyon. I'm 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 a huge lover of national parks as it is, a huge lover of the outdoors and nature. So, while this case covers some of the tragedies that it can occur in in national parks. Anytime you can get to one, especially uh, Grand Canyon, I have not been to Yosemite yet, even though I do want to go, but uh, Yellowstone, any of these national parks, if, uh, whether you're visiting America from somewhere else or you are in America, uh, you're missing out if you haven't checked out some of these parks. But anyway, we'll get back to the story here. Jens was a little concerned when his wife and the girls did not show up at the airport, but he thought there was a chance they caught an earlier flight and didn't have a way to inform him. Jens had a business meeting in Arizona that he was going to drive to and then meet up with the ladies in the Grand Canyon area. The following day, February 17th, Jens got in a round of golf and then tried to call the hotel the ladies were supposed to check in into in the Grand Canyon area and learned that they had not checked in. Growing more worried, Jens called the rental car company and learned the Pontiac had not been returned on time and Carol had not requested an extension of the contract. With all obvious changes of plan exhausted and no idea where his wife, daughter, and Sylvina were at, Jens contacted the police to report them missing and started an investigation. 
While foul play was possible, the local police that worked the area of the hotel and the National Park Rangers were familiar with missing persons cases. More often than not, hikers underestimate the distance they can hike and how quickly it can get dark in the winter months, and thought it was most likely the women had gotten lost in the park and a full-scale search and rescue operation was launched within Yosemite. And this is actually something, again, I'll, I'll take a sidestep here. That same trip that I saw the Grand Canyon, I went up into Zion and did some hiking. And I remember hiking up uh, one of the, the mountains in Zion there and getting to the top. And then on the way back down, I noticed uh, there was a bunch of emergency vehicles and, and different things in the, the trailhead parking lot there. And some guy had wandered off of a trail which you're obviously not supposed to do, but he had wandered off of this trail and he had ended up, must have ended up in some type of a creek bed or a dry creek bed, and he followed that down thinking it would bring him back down to the trailhead, but in reality, it, it basically ended in this sheer cliff and he had slid his way down to this this cliff, I don't know, must thinking he was going to be able to get down closer to the parking lot, but instead he basically trapped himself on this cliff he it was too dangerous to climb back up and he obviously couldn't go down this is something like a 400 foot straight drop that he was that guy so they had to put together this makeshift rescue and to make matters worse this thunderstorm was rolling in uh, just as we were getting to the trailhead so they were going to have to rescue this guy as the storm moved in and he was exposed to this this thunderstorm so so clearly this kind of stuff does happen in these national parks. People who don't spend a lot of time outdoors, they can either get off trail, they can get lost, they can set out and not realize you know, how much ground they have to return when they start to lose light. And so when somebody misses the next part of a trip and part of that trip was hiking inside of a major park like Yosemite, the first thought is not necessarily going to be foul play. It will be something along these lines. So first and foremost, investigators looked for the distinctive red rental car. Most trailheads in national parks have a parking area attached, and the hope was that the rental car would be located in one of these parking lots, and searchers could set out into the trails to see if the woman got lost or one of them got injured and they'd hunkered down for rescue. Because again, that's another absolutely 100% feasible situation. Now, it's a little bit different when it's three people, even a little bit different when it's two people. This is something that could very easily happen with one person. If you're out hiking and you severely roll or break something like an ankle or blow out your, your knee, ACL, MCL tear, something along those lines, if you're seven, eight miles into this trail, and this happens and you're the last hikers for the day along this trail and no rangers come along or anything like that you know there's there's the possibility that you end up getting stranded out on this trail now again i say it's a little bit different if it's two people because if one person gets injured that that person can hunker down now rules of survival are stay in place but if you're on a, a well-marked trail and the other person can get back to civilization to get you help that's probably better and when you have three people it's an even better situation where one person can stay with the injured party and then the other person can follow the trail back to the trailhead and get help while it probably wasn't 
a super high chance that one of them got injured and they all hunkered down again it just on the list of possible things that's probably going to even still be higher than them running into foul play and hours turned into days and days turned into weeks as searchers combed the park looking for the rental car or any sign of the women. The first break in the case came from well outside the park when Carol's wallet was found in Modesto, California. Modesto was in the area that the women are traveling, but the discovery of the wallet opened new possibilities. Did the women check out of the hotel and on the way back to San Francisco to meet Jens? Did something happen in Modesto? Did Yosemite and the hotel have nothing to do with their disappearance? And the wallet contained cash, credit cards, and Carol's IDs, and suddenly foul play became a much stronger option. So if I understood it right, and it's kind of difficult reading all the different articles because there's not a lot of focus on what their actual vacation plans were, but I think how I understood it was that they were going to visit Yosemite, and then they were going to go drive up to San Francisco and catch that flight down into Arizona and see the Grand Canyon, probably rent another car there, or in that case, Jens was driving down for a work meeting in Arizona, so maybe he was going to drive them around in the family vehicle. But if you look at a map, if you're driving from Yosemite to San Francisco, you potentially could drive through Modesto. So this is going to create distance away from the hotel, away from the national park, the chances that something happened to them in the park, yet the wallet is in Modesto, is not nearly as likely as something happening to them in Modesto, and that's why the wallet is there. So the FBI, is, who's in charge of the investigation because originally the disappearance was believed to have happened within the federal lands of Yosemite National Park, they moved their investigation to Modesto and started looking at likely suspects. So sex offenders, drug dealers, carjackers, and others were vetted, and Jens offered a $250,000 reward for the safe return of the three women. Every day that passed diminished the hope that the women would be found alive and strengthened investigators' belief that the women had become victims of violent crime. But there was little to no evidence to indicate what happened to the women and where the crime occurred. And one month after the women went missing, on March 18th, hikers in a forest outside Yosemite stumbled across an obviously burned out late model red Pontiac. California Highway Patrol officers responded and were able to run the vehicle's registration and learned it was in fact the missing rental car that had been driven by Carol before the disappearance. The following day, FBI crime scene techs began processing the recovered vehicle and located the badly burned bodies of two females in the trunk. It took several days, but the bodies were eventually identified via dental records as that of Carol's son and Selvina Peloso. Everyone's worst fears were now confirmed, and the hunt for the women's killer or killers was underway. While there was little hope that Julie could still be alive, officials worked frantically to search the vehicle and surrounding area for clues. So we, we've gone from they believe something could have happened, just some type of a natural accident, lost hiker situation in National Park to the wallet being found in Modesto. So they're looking at the likely suspects, anybody involved in drugs could have been possible that the the women stumbled upon some type of a drug deal or something along those lines and something happened to them as a result of that. Was it a sexual predator that somehow, you know, they offered a ride to or something like that and then something happened? And so they're all searching in the Modesto area, they're looking at suspects in the Modesto area, and then this car gets found not far from the hotel that they had stayed in, 
and it unfortunately has the, the bodies of Carol Sund and Selena Peloso in the trunk of the car. But Julie is nowhere to be found. So again, this is going to bring in all types of, well, what could have happened to Julie and how does that fit into a potential crime here? And then a week after the discovery of the car, the FBI task force headquarters in Modesto received another big break. On March 25th, a letter was received with the words, we had fun with this one, and the letter included a map of the area around Lake Pedro, about 40 miles from the burned out car. The FBI and local law enforcement descended upon the area with cadaver dogs, and in short order, they located the decomposed body of Julie's son, and she had been killed by a deep laceration to her neck. The search for the missing women was over, but the hunt for the killer or killers was on. The FBI completed a profile of the killer, and they estimated that the killer would be local as they knew and had utilized the remoteness of the area to effectively hide the car for a month and likely used local help to get around after the murders. A task force of federal, state, and local authorities was formed with the sole purpose of identifying, locating, and arresting suspects who had a violent and or sexual history that could be capable of committing the abduction and murder of the three women. The investigators were under immense pressure from local officials and businesses that relied on the park for tourism dollars. The thought that someone capable of killing three women was loose in the area of the park was not good for business, especially with the busy summer months of 1999 approaching. By mid-April, just weeks after the discovery of Julie's body, several local criminals had been located and arrested. The FBI operated on the theory that the crime was either sexually motivated or drug motivated or both and focused their investigation on violent drug dealers and sex offenders in the area near where Carol's wallet was located. Four main suspects were arrested and jailed on unrelated charges, but the FBI worked hard to get enough evidence to present charges to a grand jury to indict the men for the kidnapping and murder of the three women. The four suspects continually denied involvement in the crimes, but their past criminal histories were filled with drugs, weapons, and sex-related convictions. Several of the men had known associations, and the FBI felt this fit the idea of the group speak on the letter of We Had Fun. So when you're looking at it from the outside view, again, without the 2020 hindsight we're going to have at the end of this investigation, you have three women not from the area, 42-year-old women and then two teenage girls. And they, as far as you know, they checked out at this hotel and somehow at some point in their travels, they were all three of them abducted and then all three of them murdered. And you've got this letter saying we had fun i think there was something scratched into the hood of the the burned out car saying we have sarah or something along those lines and that's because when julie was taken captive she told her captor that her name was sarah she didn't want to give her real name so i think there's something scratched on the hood we have sarah and so with these mentions of we with just the idea that it's very difficult for one person to control three people. The FBI really operated on this idea that this was a group of men that were had worked together to commit this crime and worked together to cover up the crime. And they really felt they had the people responsible jailed on these unrelated charges. And it was just a matter of time before one of them took the first deal, the best deal possible, and flipped on, on the other people. And at the end of June 1999, the FBI came out and said they believed they had the men responsible for the killings in custody and implied the area was safe for people to visit and explore once again. 
There was a collective sigh of relief as apprehensive visitors took in the scenic beauty of summer in Yosemite. A few weeks later, the FBI realized how wrong they had been when another missing person case, this time inside Yosemite Park, indicated the killer was not just on the loose, he was still hunting. 26-year-old Joy Ruth Armstrong was a naturalist employed by the Yosemite Institute. The organization is a partner with the park and provides educational opportunities for youth visiting the park. The naturalists employed by the Institute work as researchers and instructors, and many of them live in century-old rustic cabins inside the park. On the morning of July 22nd, Joy was reported missing by a friend of hers. Joy was last seen working on the afternoon of July 21st, and then she retired to her cabin to get ready to visit her friend that evening. After Joy didn't show up that evening, the friend became concerned and a search was launched for Joy the following morning. Park rangers found Joy's decapitated body in a campground area near her cabin. It was estimated she'd been killed the evening before and had tried to run from her attacker. Her attack occurred in an area not far from where Carol's son's rental car had been located, and while the FBI remained somewhat quiet about the possible connection, people in the area were vocal about the possibility the killer was still on the loose. So what's difficult for the FBI here is they've already obviously come out and publicly said they believe they have the people responsible for this triple homicide in custody and it's safe to come back to the park and you know obviously nobody can ever make a 100 percent safety guarantee thing i mean even if these guys had been found responsible for the triple murder as i've said many times before serial killers do not have territories they do not take turns Many times they're operating within the same cities, within the same timeline. So what we have here is, yes, the murder is going to be similar. It's going to be targeting a young female. And in this case, instead of having a very deep laceration to the neck, she's going to be decapitated. But you've got some similarities. But again, you've got a triple homicide that they believe being done by a group. And then you have a singular homicide that would have likely been done by one person so while there are some connections it's not a slam dunk that the same person is responsible for both but there is that possibility and so they're going to explore that as a possibility the killing within the park did change the fbi's thought process about the earlier triple murder and then they realized that the crime likely had less to do with modesto than they originally thought and focused their investigation back to the area where the four women were last known to be alive so I don't know that it changed the group mentality, the thought that this was a group of, of people responsible, but what it did do was it did really make Modesto less likely the epicenter for these crimes and less likely that somebody from Modesto was going to drive to Yosemite National Park to commit two separate murders in which four people are killed. So they're going to kind of rethink the entire thing say well what if modesto isn't involved what if we're looking for somebody closer to the yosemite area and that brought investigators back to the hotel the sunned women and sylvania had stayed at the night before they went missing investigators had spoken to staff after the women were reported missing and one man on the staff had an interesting past Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on August 13, 1961, roughly four years before his infamous brother Stephen. After Stephen's abduction and captivity, Carrie became the only son in the house and was said he felt neglected by his parents as they focused on the abduction of his brother. When Stephen returned home a hero, Carrie later said again he felt overshadowed by the media attention 
and the attention everyone else gave Stephen. His childhood, already abnormal due to the crimes against his brother, was made more difficult as Carrie suffered from a disease that led him to pull out most of his hair. The additional stress and the bullying he experienced only made his condition worse. In 1997, Carrie was hired as a handyman for the Cedar Lodge outside Yosemite National Park. He was employed by the motel in 1999 when Carol, Julie, and Sylvina went missing and was questioned by investigators to see if he had seen anything out of the ordinary. Carrie had no significant criminal history and was calm during the interview and was not considered a suspect. He drove a distinctive 1972 Blue International Scout pickup at the time of the murders. When Joy Armstrong was murdered, investigators asked other staff members if they remembered seeing anything out of the ordinary. At least one person mentioned seeing a Blue International SUV in the area the night Joy was believed to have been killed. Investigators located tire tracks and a red mechanic hat, and they remembered Carrie wore that type of hat while employed at the motel. Carrie's place of employment was just outside the gate to the park, and Joy was found murdered just inside the park. Carrie was soon located, and investigators began interviewing him about the murder. Instead of just asking questions at the hotel this time, he was detained and brought in for a more formal questioning, and investigators searched his truck and seized a backpack that they later stated had evidence of the murder of Joy Armstrong. Despite having some strong evidence of his involvement in Joy's murder, investigators released Carrie and then searched his apartment. They located evidence in his apartment that further linked him to Joy's murder and evidence of his involvement in the triple murder from February. Investigators tried to locate Carrie to arrest him for the four murders, but he was nowhere around the motel. They heard he liked to spend time at a nearby nudist resort, so they traveled to the resort in force and arrested him without incident. During the beginning of his interrogation, Carrie told investigators he would tell them everything if they let him look at some child pornography before he went away to prison. This request was of course denied, and Carrie decided to speak anyway. Carrie told investigators that he had sexual assault and murder fantasies since he was seven, which was four years before his brother was abducted. He was jealous of the attention his brother received, but that wasn't the cause of his criminal behavior. He tried to commit suicide in 1991, two years after his brother's death, using carbon monoxide, but the attempt failed. He did seek professional help and was admitted to mental health facility after suffering a nervous breakdown in 1995 is released after receiving treatment, and by 1997, he's working at the motel outside Yosemite. And he would confess to how he committed these murders, and I guess the confession basically was the icing on the cake for this investigation. He gave the officials many details of all four murders that would have only been known to the person who committed the murders. Uh, he said in the case of the, the Sun family, and Sylvina, he saw the women in the hotel. He, he was able to gain access to the hotel room because he was obviously maintenance for the hotel. He told them that there was a leak in the room. And then somehow after he got in the room, he was able to isolate Carol and strangle her. And then did the same with Sylvina. And then he carried their bodies out to the Pontiac and... His main target of the, the entire thing was Julie. So once he had the bodies in the Pontiac, then he brought Julie out to the Pontiac, and then he drove her to, I believe he drove her to the place that he ended up killing her after he sexually assaulted her. And then for some reason, he then returned to the car and then lit the car on fire, but he 
this was some distance away from for where Julie's body ended up. And then he ended up taking a taxi. It was something like a $125 taxi ride back to the motel from the area where this Pontiac was burned out. And he got the cash from Carol's purse. And then he eventually got wise. Once he had access back to his own vehicle, he drove the wallet down to Modesto and purposely did that to throw investigators off, which worked. They started looking at all these ties to Modesto and there was nothing ever to do with Modesto. And then he purposely did the stuff like we have Sarah and we had fun with this one to try to make it look like it was multiple people and that it would take some of the attention off of the fact that he could have been capable of it uh, solo. So he actually had these these crimes pretty well thought out. And then uh, when it came to Joy, he said he was just driving in the area, saw her walking between i think it was her vehicle and the the cabin and then watering plants and he ended up stopping and having a conversation with her but then he pulled a handgun on her forced her inside her cabin tied her up and was forcing her into his truck but something like the windows were down and she was able to leap out and try to run and he ran her down ended up stabbing her and then cutting her throat and eventually decapitating her and it was just because that crime was so spontaneous and the fact that Joy fought back that he wasn't able to cover it up nearly as well. Uh, he was obviously driving his vehicle in an area where other people saw it. So the, the spontaneity of that crime led to him being caught. And there are some people who believe the four murders he was charged with were not his first murders. Kerry admitted to repressing the urge to murder for most of his life, but he is linked to five other known homicides that have not been solved. I'm not going to go into each of them because some of the connections to Kerry are very weak, but the death of Kerry's uncle in 1990 came under scrutiny after Kerry admitted that his uncle sexually assaulted him around the same time that Stephen was abducted. So there's always a chance that Kerry committed the murder and later used the claim that he was molested by his uncle to steal some attention away from his brother. And we have to look at it. I mean, Carrie obviously has a depraved mind. So is it possible that he was molested by this uncle? I, I believe it is. Is it also possible that he made up the molestation so that he would get some victim attention? That's also possible. Is it possible that he killed his uncle because of this molestation i guess is it also possible he killed his uncle because he just wanted to kill his uncle you know there's there's that's probably one of the most connected homicides because it was said that his uncle was shot in his house with his own shotgun now that made it almost sound like it was looked at as a suicide but again there's there's a lot of speculation there that carrie may have committed that murder and investigators also believe it's possible Carrie killed two women near Yosemite in 1994 and 1995, as their deaths were both geographically linked and included similar actions as his later murders, including dismemberment. So if you remember, he checked himself into a mental health facility in 1995 after having a, a, a mental breakdown. So is it possible that he killed these two women in the area in 94 and 95 and it finally caught up to him and he had this mental breakdown those murders have never been solved they included dismemberment just like his decapitation of joy so i guess it's possible that he committed those murders but it's also possible that he didn't 
And so Carrie was first put to trial for Joy's murder, and as the murder occurred on federal land, Carrie was facing a federal capital murder trial. To avoid the death penalty, he pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and sexual assault resulting in death. And he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In a somewhat confusing choice, Carrie chose to plead not guilty by reason of insanity for his state trial and triple murder. He was already facing life without parole, so maybe California just wasn't willing to offer him a plea deal, so he had to choose to try his luck avoiding the death penalty versus an insanity conviction. So I, I didn't find the you know, the legal reasons why he chose to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And even that, I don't know if, that, again, that's a misreporting, but not guilty, uh, or, or usually somebody pleads guilty, by reason of insanity, meaning they know they committed the crime, but they're claiming that they didn't know right from wrong at the time they committed the crime. They're not arguing whether they're the one that did it. So again, that could have been bad reporting by somebody saying that he pled not guilty, but basically the only way that it makes sense to me, because if, if California is going to offer carry life without the possibility of parole that's what he already has in the federal prison system why wouldn't he just accept it here and be done with it the fact that he he chose to take this to trial even though he's already in already in prison without the possibility of parole is that california was not willing to do any type of plea deal and was going to take him to trial on a death penalty case no matter what and so his only option was to this this insanity plea and to prove he was insane, Carrie's lawyers admitted that Carrie had actually planned on killing several women in the years leading up to the triple homicide, but had to back out when too many people showed up to places where he wanted to commit the killings. So it was mentioned there was a couple situations. I think he was dating a woman who had a, a teenage daughter, and he was going to kill them. But then the day that he went over there to do it, or the night that he went over there to do it, there was other people there. I think there was a, a similar situation he talked about wanting to kill people, but it, it was a public place and there was too many, too many people there. And they had a psychologist testify that Carrie suffered from obsessive-compulsive disorder, mild autism, and was obsessed with sexual assaults and murder. And now we've talked about it many times. You know, crimes, especially murder, sexual assault, these are already crimes that are committed with a depraved mind. You're not expecting somebody who has no mental illness whatsoever to just go out and, and kill people. Uh, it's just, it's not how humans are wired. And so anybody who's going to be on trial for murder likely has some type of, of bad wiring going on in their brain. But what we've said in the past is the criteria to get an actual insanity uh, defense is really, really high. You have to to not even know what you've done is wrong. And there was a case in a, a city next to the city that I was a police officer in where a, uh, I can't remember if he's a teenager, late teens, early 20s, somewhere around that age, suffered from some severe mental health issues, uh, severe schizophrenia, and he ended up decapitating his stepmother and putting her head in the dishwasher and running a dishwasher cycle on it because he felt like she had bad thoughts or unclean thoughts in her head and that by doing that and then reattaching her head to the body he would have cleansed her 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 mind 
And this was dead serious. This is 100% he believed what he did was helping his stepmother. And so when you look at a person like that, and, and he even came out and told his father, I think they were shoveling snow, told his father what he had done. Matter-of-factly, like it was, like he poured himself a bowl of cereal and had breakfast. You know, it was just, this is what I just did. And this is why I did it. And so he eventually, when this is, you know, going to go to trial or whatever it's going to be, that's an insanity defense. That's somebody who's doing something that's such as a murder, not really understanding what they're doing is wrong. When you are burning the car afterwards, when you're depositing evidence in different places to throw investigators off, uh, when you're, you know, just because you're trying to commit other killings does not make you, by court definition, insane. It means you have, obviously, again, some really screwed up stuff going on in your brain, but you knew right from wrong. You knew you weren't supposed to do this. You hid the fact that you did this. It's not going to meet the insanity defense, and the tactic's not going to work. And Carrie was found guilty of all three murders and kidnappings, and because the crimes occurred with multiple victims, involved sexual assault, and occurred against minors, Carrie was sentenced to death in 2002. And he remains on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California, and the penal system has not put anyone to death in the state of California since 2006. Many people have recognized the dichotomy of evil in this case. Stephen was the innocent victim targeted by a depraved man subjected to almost eight years of torture. He became a hero by rescuing five-year-old Timmy White from what would have been the same fate and then died less than a decade later in a tragic accident. Meanwhile, his brother succumbed to the evil in his soul and took the lives of at least four innocent people. And while he should be dead, he remains alive while his brother is the one who left the world too soon. The story of the Stainer brothers is one filled with ups and downs. There are so many moments of elation and moments of total sadness. The ending is almost Shakespearean in that all the heroes are dead and the most evil of the villain still lives. But that is a tale of two brothers. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions@gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.